You're listening to the Digital Forensics Files podcast with your host, Tyler Hatch from DFI Forensics. Hey guys, welcome to another episode of the Digital Forensics Files podcast. I am your host, Tyler Hatch from DFI Forensics. I'd like to invite everyone listening to check out DFI Forensics at dfiforensics.ca. Learn more about digital forensics and how we respond to cyber attacks for your business. I'm really excited for today's guest. I got Brent Arnold on the program. Brent is a partner in Gowlings, Toronto. He's primarily a commercial litigation lawyer, but he focuses on data protection and cybersecurity. Brent has acted as a cyber coach for many businesses experiencing ransomware attacks. So it's going to be a really interesting discussion with him. He knows a lot about tech. He's used digital forensics, so it's going to be really fun today. We'll talk to him about his practice, his journey in law, and what the future holds for Brent Arnold. So stick around. I am here with Brent Arnold from Gowlings. Brent, thanks for doing this. I appreciate your time this morning. Uh, how are you doing? Oh, fine. Thanks. It's a pleasure to be here. Uh, I've been uh, listening to the podcast and enjoying it, so I'm uh, honored to be included. I appreciate that very much. Uh, I always love having lawyers on the show. I love talking to lawyers, and I, I find people who practice law um, fascinating. Um, I, I obviously love the law and tech, and we kind of share that, I guess, a little bit. So your practice lends itself to technology and litigation and all those good things that I'm interested in, too. So can you just describe the nature of your practice for the listeners? Sure. Uh, it's, evolved, it's evolved over time. Uh, I have a, a complicated word salad title here. I am the uh, tech litigation subgroup leader for commercial litigation here at the firm uh, on the Canada uh, and Russia side. Uh, just to backtrack, I should say I'm a partner at Gowlings, and Gowlings is a global law firm as of about mm. three years ago. Uh, and so uh, I'm here in the Toronto office. Right. So I have that uh, that brief within commercial litigation, and commercial litigation is essentially just companies and people suing each other over money. Uh, I love that. So, That's exactly how I describe it to people. When people ask what kind of a lawyer I used to be, it's precisely what I say. That's hilarious. There you go. There you go. Uh, so, uh, I mean, it's a very uh, big umbrella. Uh, yeah. The technology piece uh, occupies, uh, occupies a lot of what I'm doing now, and it's a combination of things like cybersecurity. Uh, mm -hmm. We're growing uh, our, our global practice in that, and uh, I'm, I'm a part of that, and I act as a breach coach. Yeah. Uh, it also covers other aspects of um, other kinds of litigation that just have a technology flavor, whether it's, uh, you know, representing uh, companies and software implementation disputes or maybe sometimes wrong for the customers that sort of a thing mm -hmm. uh if, if it's litigation and it has a tech flavor to it there's a good chance it lands on my desk nice um very neat practice and and you're doing it at a very high level like you mentioned your firm is global gallings is a very big presence in canada you're in the heart you're in the belly of the beast in toronto there so uh congratulations on your success you're and you're a fairly young lawyer um as well you, you're called to the bar in 2006 right yeah, that's right. I have more gray hair than it seems over the camera. But uh, yeah, yeah. No, I, I, and I've been at the firm my, my whole career. It's been an interesting evolution. I started off doing sort of a more general practice and, and a, a fair amount of construction law, at least enough to get my life read once a year. So uh, and that that's less of what I do now, thankfully. But uh, but yeah, no, yeah. it's been it's been an interesting ride. Well done. Take me back to the early days of kind of your your evolution into law school even back then. Why Why did you choose law? You know, I, I have a I have a stock story for this, which is absolutely mm. true, but it's not very satisfying. <laughs> I started off, uh, I came out of two degrees in political science with little in the way of marketable skills and no contacts. 
And I started off uh, with a very strange job working at a, uh, a startup biotech that was being oh. run out of, uh, out of a university teaching hospital. And so it was a small, we were seeing in those days, uh, it's obviously with Mars uh, a much bigger uh, thing now, but in those days, even we were still, we were seeing sort of 3P uh, partnerships and, and a lot of uh, small companies, startup companies working hand in glove with university research centers. So this was a company that did uh, was involved in uh, developing uh, IP uh, immune therapeutics for transplant patients. Oh. Uh, and I knew nothing about that, and I mm -hmm. had no science uh, background at all. And that's part of why I got the job. I was hired by oh. the, uh, uh, the 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 person in charge of developing the business business, and he says, "I don't need another scientist. I need somebody that speaks English who can talk to scientists." Ah. So uh, so I got that job, and I worked there for a few years, and uh, I sort of grew as far as I was going to grow in the job. And mm -hmm. one of the interesting things that I was encountering was I was I was meeting a lot of lawyers in the course of that. I was dealing with lawyers to do with things to do with the hospital. I was meeting lawyers uh, who were intellectual property lawyers because mm -hmm. we were patent a lot of uh, uh, a lot of stuff in those days. And so it was an interesting sort of view into that. World because you know, up to that point, sort of, I knew about, uh, about as much about law as anyone that, that has a television has. So I didn't have a really good idea of what it actually looks like, let alone right. business, let alone business litigation. Yeah. Uh, but I've got an interesting sort of view into it, and I'd sort of thought I'd gone as far as I can with with this, it seems. And by this point, I was also working for the hospital, and they were going to put me up for a. Um, they were going to help me uh, get a degree in healthcare management, and oh. I applied to that and law school. And I got into both. Mm -hmm. And I honestly cannot remember why I chose law school. I think I may have flipped a coin. That's what I usually tell people. <laughs> but I actually can't remember how I made the decision. Really? That's really <laughs> I'm interesting. Glad I, I'm glad I did, but I wish I had a I wish I had a better yeah. uh, <laughs> recollection of how I got here. Interesting. Yeah. I mean you, you refer to that as kind of a boilerplate story, but it's fabulous. That's a really great backdrop to your career and yeah you must be so happy that you made the right choice i mean i'm sure you would have been successful anyway you're you're obviously a brilliant guy but but you seem particularly well, apt at, at being a lawyer i've been enjoying uh, i mean if you work in the hospital long enough and you get into enough arguments with people you start to realize i'd rather be paid for the arguing than paid for the results there you go uh there you go but i mean it was it was an interesting trajectory for me because it meant i went into law school a couple of three years older than the average student who mm -hmm. comes in right out of undergrad and i had some business experience I yeah very sort of unique environment uh, where you're dealing with the sort of politics of the university lab and, and also working with the sort of the dynamic of a startup company. Yeah. Uh, so I felt like that sort of gave me a bit of an edge going through the recruiting process. And when I started off as a student and then the first couple of years as a lawyer, I'd sort of already done some of the things that you sometimes spend your first few years doing, figuring out how an office works, figuring mm -hmm. out how the company works, figuring out how to talk to somebody who runs a company. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, it, it worked out all right. And it's been, uh, it's sort of very distantly sort of introduced the beginning of a flavor for interest in tech and, te and technology for me. Yeah, for sure. Have you always been interested in tech or is this sort of something that you developed over time? It's been, it's always sort of been in the background. What brought it to the foreground and actually what got me into cyber was uh, I do a lot of work with uh, uh, a group called the Advocate Society. And I'll mm -hmm. make the plug here for the lawyers on the- uh, Please, yeah. The listenership. It's the com com the country's preeminent um, trial lawyers organization. They do uh, continuing legal education, so skills training for litigators, and they also advocate. Uh, they intervene in cases where access to justice issues come up, that sort of a thing. And I was running a subcommittee for it. 
uh, subcommittee that dealt with needs of young lawyers. This is around 2015. And a very respected and, and, and uh, interesting judge came to the society and said, I want my trials to be paperless. And we've seen in the years wow. since then a lot more press on the issue. Uh, and actually just recently the Auditor General came out with a report about inefficiencies in the court system. And one of the massive ones is how much paper we generate every year, how much of yeah. it gets sent off to off-site storage. Uh, and like it, it clogs the system and it makes it nearly impossible for anything to get done quickly. Mm -hmm. uh, so he came to the society four years ago and said, I want the society to publish a publication that explains to lawyers and to judges how to do a paperless trial. Assume that you will get no cooperation from the ministry right. or resources from the court just because we're not there yet. Yeah. Uh, so what can you do with the tools that are available? Can't be too expensive. So I, and this came to the society and they said, well, who knows about this stuff? We'll give it to the person that runs the young lawyers committee because, you know, young lawyers, computers. Sure. Makes sense. Yes. So it landed on my desk. Uh, so I took that project on and I worked on that for about a year and I got to meet some very interesting people in the uh, legal tech sector. I got to meet with some judges and lawyers who were sort of leaders in this drive to modernize the courts. Uh, and we wrote the publication. Uh, and where that sort of goes, uh, you may have had this experience, uh, when people know that you have done something that's tech-related, anytime that's anything with tech in it comes up in the conversation, they think of you. Yeah. Uh, I'm still trying to convince lawyers in my firm that I'm not actually tech support. Uh, <laughs> sometimes they believe me, sometimes they don't. Uh, so that sort of ended up sort of paving the way for the cyber practice because mm. I was sort of being known as, as, as a person around here that had an interest in technology sort of writ large. And, right. Uh, and it sort of pushed me in that direction more specifically. Mm -hmm. That's fascinating. I love to hear that that was an initiative that came from the bench um, to modernize the courts. That that seems the opposite of what I've heard is, is happening. So that's really great to hear. It's the opposite of the stereotype, but I had a very interesting conversation with a federal court judge, and he was not a young man. He was close to retirement, but his yeah. part of his brief was modernizing the federal court. And he right. walked into the meeting, and I met him for the first time, and he had a better iPad and stylus than I had. Ah. <laughs> so, uh, and, and he explained something to me that I'd never considered. He said, it's not the old judges on my court that are the problem. They're not the ones who are resistant to change. It's the lawyers that come from ah. big law, the judges that came from big law firms. The, lawyer, the people that came from practice where they could click their fingers and have 20 boxes of photocopies made, mm. they're the ones that are resistant to change because they've never had to. It's easy for them to do things in a paper-intensive way right. uh, because they're not the ones paying for it and they're not the ones doing the work. Mm -hmm. If you come from a small firm or you're a sole practitioner, you have to be a lot more agile. You have to be a lot more technological just as a, yeah. as, as a grand proposition. That's awesome. I, I love that kind of stuff. I know, so I stopped practicing in 2010 and even back then we just started to have e-filing and, and documents that were e-signed and we could, you know, there were limitations on how you could still serve those kind of documents, but at least filing them was a lot easier and starting to move towards paperless. And I thought that was just a brilliant thing, especially when yeah. there was like a deadline and you had an hour to get to Vancouver from the suburbs and you had no time and you were never going to make it. So you could file it online. It was brilliant. It saved me a lot of gray hairs. <laughs> well, we've started, we've started. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's, it's starting to be implemented the last couple of years here in Ontario and there's the uptake to it is, is, is increasing. Um, some people are using it religiously and mm -hmm. I, and, and I think actually the resistance you're going to see to it is still in situations where it's just easy to do what you've already done, yeah. already, always done. Like down here on Bay street, the big firms are a five minute walk from the court. Mm -hmm. For some people, it will still be easier for them to send a process server than to spend the time it takes to figure out how the government portal works. Right. 
Now, those are, there's a degree of inertia that we're still going to have to overcome, but certainly lawyers practicing in smaller centers or uh, lawyers who are practicing all over the province, it's mm-hmm. been a real boon to them. They can issue a claim in Thunder Bay from Hamilton or from Toronto. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Huge. And on that topic, just kind of the, the natural progression from my mind is going into this whole thing about that's just filing to get into like the paperwork to, to, to process a lawsuit, but actually relying on digital evidence. What's that world like? And then you know, doing what we do, which is the forensics and presenting the facts, but then how you as a lawyer have to present something technical in court. Uh, What's that scene like? It presents challenges, uh, as you'd expect, because the mindset for the court is still, and frankly, the lawyers is still uh, paper-based or something analogous to paper. So even Mm -hmm. in in a digital trial, what we are doing is doing something that simulates the experience of paper, right? You're dealing mm-hmm. with brief, often often briefs of documents that are PDFs with uh, bookmarks where a tab would be. Right. So they've taken the paper product and they have scanned it in and that's, and that's better than uh, working with the paper in the court. Right. But eventually we're going to have to come to the realization on the more complicated cases and dealing with the more complicated kinds of evidence mm-hmm. um, that the, 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 the analogy doesn't work anymore. These things are nothing to do with paper and you mm-hmm. have to present them in a native form in a way that's convincing and understandable to the court. And there's a few different barriers all rolled into that, right? Mm-hmm. Understandable to the court is one issue, right? And we have right. an increasingly sophisticated judiciary, especially in Toronto, but there's still, I mean, this isn't something that anyone's getting formal education on is understanding yeah. these kinds of things. Right. One, I mean, to give you a concrete example, we are, uh, when you're dealing with, let's say, uh, online defamation, yeah. and you want to track what has this person been saying about me for a period of time, I'm going to grab all their social media feeds. There's software that'll allow you to do that, yep. uh, and you can capture all of it in a sort of a um, sort of in a bottle, so you have the uh, like the whole possibly their whole website too, for that matter. If they're doing things on their on their own website, you can have that sort of um, entire ecosystem of of, of pages and links uh, all together. Uh, in a way that you can still click on it and work through, and it operates as though it were live. You also need the ability, though, to reduce it to paper. Uh, right. We had a case recently where we needed to get into court quickly on an injunction. Mm-hmm. We needed to have an affidavit, and we needed to have attached to it um, tweets. Right. Uh, and the you know, without special software to do that, somebody has to sit there and one by one crank out all the tweets and mm-hmm. they're not really formatted properly for paper so it looks terrible and it's a very time consuming process and when you're dealing with an injunction situation you need this to happen fast right so uh we're getting there in terms of uptake of the tools in the profession and we're further behind i think in, in, in figuring out strategies for making it comprehensible to the judiciary mm-hmm. uh, still we're dealing with situations where the lawyers barely understand it yeah so it presents <clears throat> a lot of interesting challenges is the short not very satisfying answer Oh, I, I, I find it interesting. So you're doing just fine. But um, in terms of then presenting that to the court, I mean, do do the judges understand the difference between a, a tweet and a post and what a URL is and what encryption is and metadata and IP address? Do, do they just kind of get glossy eyed and confused at that point? Or do most of them have a good sense of what that all means? It's hard to it's hard to generalize about uh, you know, the, the the bench writ large. Mm-hmm. My experience has been that they are very they are they are a lot more savvy than we give them credit for. It's good to hear. You don't you don't see here because the Canadian legal profession is uh, um, and the, 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 the judiciary for that matter. It's not an elected bench. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, it's not an elected bench, so you don't see people sort of interacting with the public in the way you see American judges do. Right. But they understand social media. They're on, you know, to some extent, on social media. They're not tweeting the way the American judges do, but they, you know, they're, they're conversant in it. 
Uh, and, and most of my experiences in, in, in terms of sort of bringing them along and having understand the, uh, you know, the kinds of files, what these things do, what the programs do, has been generally pretty positive. So I, 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 I can't say it's a, it's a huge problem, but it's, um, the bigger issue you have is, is in, in, in dealing with the evidentiary uh, issues, I think. You know, how do you actually get this in? Uh, how do you how right. do you find this right? And this is where our, our rules of court aren't really set up for these kinds of things. Mm-hmm. So it requires a bit of creativity on the part of the bench uh, in terms of crafting the way that you know, procedurally the way the, the way that we're going to handle the in court presentation and the, the preserving yeah. of the court record afterward. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of layers to this whole thing that. Um that have to come together to make it go smoothly. So it's, it's interesting. I'm, and I appreciate your comments about not generalizing to the bench. And I, I, I didn't mean to be, you know, doing that, but uh, I'm just kind of curious from, from my own perspective, how that might work in your experience. But uh, yeah. And, and, and some of the difficulty is that you, you, I mean, we have very smart judges and they've been mm-hmm. very good appointments in the last few years, but often they are coming from a background that has just got nothing to do with, I mean, these kinds of issues are, are coming up a lot in commercial cases. They're going to yeah. come up in criminal cases as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, you know, some of it is just to do with the background of the judge uh, coming into it. In Toronto, we have um, a, a commercial court that is uh, very, sp- it, it, it's dedicated to dealing with only certain kinds of commercial disputes. Oh, wow. It's a very sophisticated, it's a very sophisticated uh, judiciary. The judges, uh, they know this world, they know business law. Mm-hmm. Uh but not you know, in most centers, the judge has to be a generalist, right? They're dealing yeah. with criminal cases one day, civil the next. Yeah, and that's, that presents challenges for everybody. So I'm really glad to hear it. How long has that initiative been around the commercial court? Well, as, at least as long as I've been practicing, and, and I think quite really? a bit longer. Wow, that's yeah. great. Yeah, yeah. no, I, I can remember um, going into court and getting somebody with a commercial, or sorry, a, a criminal law background and trying to explain something like, I don't know, like unjust enrichment or some crazy concept like that, and it just... It, it was difficult to then, you know, have to deal with that on top of everything else that you're dealing with in a trial, how to communicate effectively to somebody who may not have the background in the specialty that this case involves. So, um, yeah, that's that's interesting that you, you touched on that. Talk to me about um, being a cyber coach. You've, you've dealt with a lot of businesses where you're acting in an active ransomware situation. Is that right? That's right. Uh, sometimes it's not active anymore. Sometimes mm. they come to you after they've already been through rounds of negotiation and, and possibly paid out or possibly decided mm-hmm. not to pay out. I mean, in a world of dreams, you all the the, the, the breach coach would always be the first call, right? And you'd be very early on. In practice, uh, what often happens is you get brought in after a client has only started to understand how big the problem is, uh, tried mm-hmm. to solve it themselves. Um, I'm still seeing more clients are not ready in the way that frankly governments and courts have been expecting to be ready uh, they don't have incident response plans in place they don't have teams set up for this they don't necessarily even have people in their in their organization not just on the technical side but on the business side mm-hmm. who, for whom cyber is part of their brief right uh, the, the temptation on a lot of businesses is just to like cyber has just been something that's been added onto the desk of the IT people yeah and it gets thought of as an IT problem it's not it's a risk management problem so often I'm still seeing clients coming in where they are completely unprepared for this. I mean, mm-hmm. they've got the technical controls that they're, that they're supposed to have in place. They're patching, they're updating, they've got right. firewalls, all the rest of it. But if something gets passed, they don't have an, uh, a boots on the ground plan to respond immediately. Right. Uh, so that means you're, you're doing a lot of triage at the front end. How far along are we in this? Uh, how serious do we think this is? And you have to simultaneously, I mean, we all know sort of what the cycle is on how you're supposed to deal with this, right? Have we closed the door so no more horses can yeah. get out? 
we have to preserve the evidence as we go. We have to worry mm-hmm. about notification uh, if that's going to be necessary, all of that. So uh, it makes for some very exciting first phone calls. Uh, <laughs> and then it's a, a, a tale where you sort of yeah. take them through the, uh, you know, all right, now how do we deal with this? How do we deal with the commissioner? And how do we make sure, like, how do we prepare and make sure this doesn't happen again? And mm-hmm. by the way, here are all the controls that you really need to have in place because if you have to report and if this turns into something, regulator or the courts are going to expect to see that you have learned a lesson and done something about it. Yeah, right. Precisely. You you laid that out really well in terms of how some an organization should prepare all of the um, pieces of the puzzle that need to come together to deal with that kind of attack. And and we're just talking about that's just more so like a ransomware attack, but there's it's even greater when there's a, a data breach or, or other kind of aspects that could come up. So I find your comments there very very uh they hit home for me right right well thank you yeah no it's it's uh i mean it's a fascinating no no it's a problem solving uh, exercise and the steps are largely the same every time but mm-hmm. this scenario is different every time so it's mm-hmm. a, it's an interesting field for a person a good field for a person with a short attention span it's always interesting <laughs> yeah i i find it interesting with um those kind of that, that element of our work because it is it does you mentioned about getting that first phone call and it is kind of exciting but it's also kind of nerve-wracking because you generally don't know what you're walking into um, you don't know how bad it's going to be you don't know what the expectations of the clients are are, are they thinking you're just going to save the day in five minutes or do they know that it's a bit more of a process that's involved um, and they I find it so rewarding when it goes well and and you you guide them through this very difficult situation um, having legal counsel involved and having a forensics team and having very competent IT people internally or externally. Um, it's really rewarding to work through a crisis situation like that, but it is nerve wracking in the beginning, isn't it? Absolutely. And I mean, of the list of people that you you mentioned in that, the ones that my heart goes out to the most is always the IT people, because oh. again, cybersecurity is a different discipline than, than, than IT. It's not mm-hmm. the same thing. Yeah. Uh, it gets put on their desk. It gets taken out of their budget. And now mm-hmm. they have to make decisions about, am I going to give people the new toys they keep demanding, or am I going to put the money into security, which frankly, nobody sees the benefit in mm-hmm. as well. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, and, and so they often sort of get put into position of managing problems they're not trained to manage with resources they don't have. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then of course the blame often comes back to them. Well, why weren't we ready for this? Well, because right. this was something the organization articulated to be a priority and mm-hmm. it should have. Yeah, absolutely. That's, 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 not, that's not an IT department's decision. That's management. Yeah. And it's important to know too, you mentioned having all the controls in place and firewalls and all those kind of things, but almost all of them happen because it's a human that gets exploited and, and manipulated. And they know that. Oh, yeah. That's, that's how it happens. So um, you, you quickly, you quite correctly identify that it is not just an IT problem. That's what we always say as well. Yeah, no, absolutely. Brent, I'm always impressed with you because you practice law at the very highest level and you seem to just enjoy it and do it so easily. What's, what's your secret to having like work-life balance and, and just having fun in what you do? Well, we used to talk about work-life balance. Now nobody says that anymore. They say work-life integration. Okay. All right. Fair enough. (laughs) So work-life reintegration sort of recognizes that you're never going to, uh, you're never going to have a a watertight compartment between the work and the rest of your day, especially if you're doing what we do, because you don't know when you're going to get that phone call. My cell phone's on. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's understood. I'm going to be dealing with my personal life while I'm at the office and I'm going to be working while I'm 
watching my kid uh, play in a park. So yeah. uh, some of that is just you, you just sort of shake hands with that and, and hope that you enjoy what you're doing enough to make it work for you. Yeah. Uh, but you also carve out the time to do things that sort of, I don't know, free your mind up in other ways. I mean, I've always tried to find something that's meditative that takes my mind off of focus, you know, mm -hmm. the constant thrum in the background of the things that you're worrying about in, in, in work. I try to find something that takes me out of that, something to concentrate on. For a long time, it was, mm -hmm. uh, I, I was a sort of an amateur classical musician. So for a long time, really? it was, uh, it's hard to manage a band practice schedule when you're a dad and a, and a, and a lawyer doing what we do. So I haven't yeah. been able to keep that up as much as I'd like. But a couple of years ago, I started taking up in middle age martial arts. Oh, wow. Uh, largely because I wanted to, we wanted my, uh, my daughter to be able to defend herself. So we yeah. started doing, going to lessons as a family. What, uh, and what that was very, uh, yeah, no, absolutely. What I discipline mean, were you training? Oh, I was learning Taekwondo, and it's, oh, nice. the, uh, it's the original style of Taekwondo, not the kind that uh, is, is is competitive and mm -hmm. not the one that's an Olympic sport. This is the original military style one, uh, and it was, it's fascinating because you spend, I mean, it's very regimented. Uh, yeah. It's very, um, like you, the first half of every uh, uh, of every session is, is stretching and drills yes. and up and a bit of strength training and all mm -hmm. that and there's a real sort of ritual to that that you can lose your mind sort of lose yourself in that i like very much yeah that's really great uh, i actually can relate to that because as a young man i took karate and and my brother and my sister were in it with me it was very much a family activity and it taught me not only not only gave me strength and physical strength and stretching and all those kind of things but just it really relaxed your mind it taught you discipline it taught you um, you're learning how to defend yourself, but you do not use this unless you're under attack. You don't go out and bully people. And it's a really healthy thing to be engaged in. That whole uh, martial arts mindset is very about respect and discipline and control. So I, I really... Yeah, no, I absolutely found that. I also found that it's good for, um, it's excellent for humility because I went yeah. <laughs> in, as, started as the oldest, slowest white belt in in the in my uh, in my gym, and it's mm -hmm. uh, I've worked my way up to the mid color belts, and um, yeah, I'm still. There are twelve-year-olds running circles around me, mm -hmm. uh, so it sort of keeps you. Uh, it reminds you that you know you're not comparing yourself to other people; you're comparing yourself to where you were last week. Yeah, absolutely, hundred percent. Very cool. And you also, you read a lot, don't you? I follow you on Twitter and you, you, you post some interesting content and what you might expect from somebody who does your job, but you also post a lot of your personal interests, like some literature posts and things like that. And you're quite funny too. I love your feet. You have a great dry sense of humor. If you don't mind me saying. Kind of you to say it helps if you have good weird material. I follow, uh, I, there's a few things. One is a bot that tweets out seemingly random quotes from Moby oh, Dick, and every once in a while yeah. I'm amazed at how appropriate one of those will fit what's happening in my day. Right. Uh, and I follow a lot of cyber, and I try to sort of put out a lot of content on that front. But I'm also following a bot that's connected to a cat flap. Yes. Every time the cat comes in and out, it it, it posts. So <laughs> uh, my my interests on, on on have become esoteric, I guess. Yeah. But it's been an interesting sort of, I'm sure, I'm sure you've seen this, there's an interesting community of lawyers, we sort of call it, you know, hashtag law Twitter. Uh, and there's a community of lawyers that are all sort of speaking and having a, a conversation that's completely separate from what, what's going on in their own offices. Uh, and it sort of crosses cities and practices, uh, practice disciplines and, uh, and you know, you know, stages of career. Mm -hmm. It's a very interesting community. And it, it's, it's been sort of, sort of opened my eyes up to a lot of issues that you sometimes don't 
catch when you're sitting in a Bay Street mm-hmm. firm in a, in a tower yeah. downtown in Toronto. Uh, it sort of opens your eyes to other areas of uh, you know, things that other people in the profession are struggling with or succeeding at. So mm-hmm. it's been an interesting uh, thing for me to watch. Yeah, that sounds really neat. Yeah, and something that you probably wouldn't have been exposed to maybe 10 or 15 years ago. This is part of the, the change in the way we interact with other people in our community now because of technology. Yeah, no, absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Really cool. What does the future hold for Brent Arnold? What are your, some of your career aspirations that you have left to attain, if any? <laughs> <laughs> oh, there's plenty. There's plenty. Uh, we're going to keep building uh, the business along the lines we're doing. Uh, I've started in the last couple of years doing a lot of work with a, a, a trial organization in the States called the DRI, which uh, has an ominous-sounding name, Defense <laughs> Research Institute, but it's, uh, it's, uh, it's, uh, it just means defense sidebar organization. Right. So I'm working on, I'm on the executive for their cybersecurity uh, and data privacy group. So that's been a lot of fun. I'm enjoying working on that. Uh, I'm still doing a lot of teaching with the Advocate Society, which I find very rewarding. Uh, and apart from that, it's just going to be more of the same, just continuing to build the business. And uh, part of my brief around here is also working with our, uh, working with my own firm to uh, improve sort of our uptake of new technologies and innovation mm-hmm. within the firm. That's something that I'm very active in. And that's uh, something that's been a passion for me. So it's been something that I've, I've, I've had a lot of fun with. So I think I'm going to keep doing that. Certainly people keep coming to me with questions. So I imagine that's going to stay part of the, part of uh, the scene for me. Good. That sounds, that sounds amazing. I'm, I congratulated you on all your success. The role you have with Gallings is amazing. I know you're helping a lot of your clients. Uh, it's an honor and a pleasure for me to be connected to you professionally. And uh, thank you for, for coming on the podcast and, and having a chat. It was really, really interesting getting to hear more about you. Oh, it's been a pleasure. Thanks so much. Have a great day, Brian. You too. Okay, bye. bye. Are you a lawyer who wants to learn about how you can use digital forensics in your modern day lawsuit? Great. Go to dfiforensics.ca to learn more. If you have questions about your particular case, we'd love to hear from you. Consultations are always free, so email us or call us today.